Um, If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10. We've been in a series. We've we've put a pause button on our series uh, for a couple weeks, but we're back in our series on In His Steps. And uh, we've been studying the life of Christ chronologically. We'll finish that this summer. That's our plan, Lord willing. Um, We will uh, begin in the fall. The plan is to focus on his final steps, Um, the the last week of Christ, also called the Passion Week, um, because it was a week of very heightened passion and uh, activity. So we'll, uh, the plan is around August, we'll, we'll start that series as we watch the end. But, but all of these things that we're talking about the past uh, couple s- sermons in this series, and from here forward, Christ is making his final approach to Jerusalem. The end is near. As uh, we've said, you've got in your bulletin, there's a handout. You can fill in the blanks. There's also a phone number. You can text questions if you have them. Comment questions on the YouTube link if you have them as well. Uh, we like to have a little bit of an interaction. Um, but uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And this is what it says. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And Jesus obviously being the subject there. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. The title of my message this morning is called The Kingdom of Children. This story is repeated in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And it's always stood out to me. And part of the reason that it stood out to me is because when I was a child, I would always hear this story read to me from the King James Version. And the King James Version, Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me. Well, when I was a child, I wanted to know why is Jesus wanting these children to suffer? Of course, it was explained that's not the way suffering You know, it's not the same suffering that I thought of at the time. But it's a very unusual dynamic. This is a very unique story in the Gospels between the parents, the children, the disciples, and Jesus. And this often overlooked and seemingly insignificant exchange becomes a significant confrontation between Jesus and his disciples. Now, we've read the story. But I'm going to give it to you. We're going to break it down in the original language so that you can see some of the unique things that are going on actually in this story. Parents were bringing infants and very young children to Jesus for him to lay his hands on them. And the word here is to fasten or to kindle a fire. So it seems that the parents wanted Jesus to anoint the kids and kindle the power and the gifts of God within them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked the parents. However, the word rebuke also means to raise the price of, to award based on merit, or to tax. So while the rebuke is part of it, It also seems like the disciples were trying to limit access to Jesus and even charge people and make a profit from those who approached him. That's a very different understanding of what was going on in this gospel account. And this action by the disciples explains why Jesus became indignant 
with them. He was furious at them. If the disciples had simply just tried to get the kids away from Jesus because they were trying to get a teachable moment with him, then that's one thing. But when they tried to profit off of access to God, that is something that Jesus had zealous anger against. And if you remember back to one of the earlier sermons in this series, the In His Step series, you remember that Jesus cleared the temple. And he cleared the temple. He kicked everybody out of the temple. He flipped tables because they were trying to profit off of God's requirements. In order to pay the temple tax, you could only do so with approved temple coins. That meant that worshipers had to exchange their currency for temple currency. And the money changers that did so were cheating people that were coming to the temple to to worship. So Jesus drove them out because Scripture says, zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus is already demonstrated he'll get angry if you try to profit off of access to God, if you try to make it difficult for people to access God. And that is exactly what the disciples were doing here. They were taxing people. They were rebuking them and preventing access. So Jesus responded to the disciples by saying, permit, allow, do not forbid, do not hinder, let it go, leave it alone. Let them come to me, don't hinder them, don't withhold them, don't deny them, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. It exists for them. It happens to them. It's present in them. And then Jesus used this statement that makes the reader sit on the edge of our seats. So when you see this, you should pay attention to what Jesus is about to say when he says, truly I say to you. Because that phrase means that Jesus is about to drop some knowledge on the listeners. He's about to expand and give a special teaching. And so he's going to give a new paradigm, a new perspective. And it starts with the word amen in the original, if you were to take this in Hebrew. Truly I say to you, he's saying the word amen. And the word amen means so be it or let it be. So he said to his disciples, Amen, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. Whoever doesn't receive. And this word receive means to take by the hand or to hold hands with. So a small child holds hands with their parent when they go out in public. Sometimes unwillingly, but you still hold the hand of the child and you bring the child with you. And when you hold the child, it provides security, it demonstrates affection, and it implies to the public that there is a familial connection between the two people. They're related. They belong together. The child belongs to the parent, otherwise the child would scream to try to get away. So Jesus is saying here, if you're unable to hold hands with the kingdom of God in the same way a child holds hands with their parent, if you don't have that kind of connection, if you don't have that kind of relationship, you will never enter the kingdom of God at all. And then Jesus 
began embracing the children. He took them up in his arms. He put his hands on them, and uh, meaning that he was going to establish, he was going to fix, he was going to ordain blessings on them. And the word for blessing is kachulageo, which means to call down blessings or to eulogize. Eulogeo would be familiar to us because when you go to a funeral, you hear someone give a eulogy, which is good words. You're talking good about the person who is deceased. And so that's what they want, the parents wanted Jesus to do, to call down blessings, to speak good, favorable, prophetic words over their children. So based on all of the word meanings we've gone through, this is a literal version of this passage. From the Greek. Parents brought their infants and toddlers to Jesus to fasten his hands on them and to kindle a fire inside of them. But the disciples tried to tax or charge admission to Jesus. When Jesus saw this, he was furious. He said to them, Let the children come to me and do not deny them access, for God's kingdom belongs to them and is present in them. It is the way I say to you, anyone who will not hold hands with God's kingdom like a child does, you will never enter it at all. Then Jesus embraced the children, picking them up, and by God's power established blessings and good words over them. It's a powerful moment in the lives of these children, in the lives of these parents. It was a powerful rebuke against the disciples. Now, when we try to imagine what life is like in heaven, how old do you think you are when you are in heaven? Do you imagine that the age you are when you die is the age you stay in heaven? For some people, they they probably hope not. Um, You know, if if that is the case, though, what about stillborn children? What about miscarriages? What about infants who die? from SIDS or other things, how old are they in heaven? Or, or is everybody kind of like 25 years old? That feels like a good age. You can run a good mile, you know, you're in pretty good shape, or you hope to be. In heaven, you will be at least. Um, everybody will have a six-pack. It's just standard issue. Um, if you don't want a six-pack, then maybe the Lord will make a special dispensation for you. But, you know, I'm not going to say anything authoritative because the Bible doesn't really go into much detail in that regard. But the only time I've ever come across any idea that answers that question is in this passage. What is it about the perspective of a child that is so critical to understanding God's kingdom? How can we be so intimately attached to the kingdom of God, holding hands with it, having a familial connection with it. What does that look like? Well, there's some things that we can see in this passage together and in just life. If God's kingdom has to be approached like a child, then, number one, the kingdom of God is pure and uncorrupted. The kingdom of God is pure and uncorrupted. In Titus 1.15, Paul writes... To the pure, all things are pure, and to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. 
You see, we have to teach children that not everybody is nice. We have to teach people, we have to teach children that not everyone is kind. We have to tell them, don't take candy from strangers. Because in the mind of a child, candy is a good thing, and a person with a pocket full of candy is even better. A person who has a van full of candy is even better than that. And we have to teach children, don't take candy from strangers. Don't go with somebody that you don't know who they are. If they're not related to you, don't go with them. They don't understand the world the way we do. And I think it is the main responsibility of each parent to maintain and help that child maintain innocence and chastity and purity in their lives as long as possible. When you have a child that is innocent, they know only good things and they expect only good things. When evil is done to them, they don't understand why. They expect good things from their parents, from their teachers, from their siblings, and from their God. God's kingdom expects the best from us. Though we may not consider ourselves to be innocent, if we're under the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been made pure, we have been made holy, we have been set apart for God's use because of it. And God's kingdom is pure, God's kingdom is uncorrupted, and it is also, number two, audacious. The kingdom of God is audacious. My, my children, if they're watching, they know they especially have this down. They used to ask to eat out every single night of the week. So much so that we had to come up with a chart of which places, which restaurants allowed the children to eat free because we could not afford to keep this up. We had to take out a second mortgage just to pay for all the eating out the children wanted to do. And they would often ask, especially when they were younger, they would often ask if they could go out, if we could go to a Chinese buffet. Chinese buffet. That is the greatest uh, racket in all of the restaurants, the Chinese buffet. And I like Chinese food, so, you know, I would say, okay, okay, we'll do it. Well, we would go to the Chinese buffet, and then I would look at their plates, and I was the only one eating Chinese food. They would get pizza and chicken nuggets and french fries. I paid $14 a person when most of the food that they were actually eating could have been, could have been purchased at McDonald's for about five bucks a kid. However, that did not keep them from stopping to ask to spend all of my money. They knew what they wanted, and they were willing to ask for it. They were audacious. In James chapter 4, verse 2, James wrote, You don't have because you don't ask God for it. God, children are audacious in their requests. They don't know you're broke. So they ask for incredibly expensive things, and the older they get, the more expensive the thing it is that they want. Hallelujah. I see that hand. I want to go back to the days where we could just walk the toddler toy aisle and pick up something that will probably be broken in about two weeks and just give it to them. I don't care if you're 16. Play with that Tonka truck. 
Children dream big. They expect big and they ask big. To put it in a spiritual context, God expects us to be audacious askers. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 12, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing and he will do even greater things than these. If you underline or highlight in your Bible or if you're using the Bible app, you can hold your finger down and highlight across that phrase, even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. We look at the life of Christ and what Christ accomplished. He rose people from the dead. He healed the sick, cleansed the leper. Uh, People who had never walked a day in their life, he healed them, these lame people, and they could not just stand up, not just bear weight, but they could run and leap and jump. And Jesus says we can do even greater things than he was doing because he is going to the Father. So we're called to be audacious with God. Don't just ask God for the bare minimum. Now, I'm not saying, you know, call thing. God can call things into existence that don't exist, but we can ask audaciously as long as we're asking in accordance with God's will and, and what God would want. And so we should dream big when we, since we can come boldly before God's throne and present our petitions before him, we should dream big. We should expect big. We should ask big from God. God's kingdom is pure and uncorrupted. God's kingdom is audacious. Number three, it's also imaginative and creative. I'm constantly amazed at the creativity and the imagination of children. We have twin three-year-olds at home, and they're learning how to talk, and they're using their imagination. And, you know, yes, sometimes they they repeat things that they hear. Um, Thankfully, the things they hear are good, you know, and and pure. Uh, But Gideon will sometimes find a box, and he'll stand up on it, and he'll say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? And and he'll say, and, and Gideon will also, he's the one that says, okay, guys, I have some good news, and I have some bad news. And then he doesn't tell us what good news or bad news there is. I mean, we're really left with a bit of a cliffhanger, but they're incredibly imaginative and creative, and they're hilarious. At some point, though, children, when, when our children dream out loud, adults, we sometimes force some realistic wisdom on them. We sometimes tell them, look, I mean, I know you're six years old, but you're not college material, so let's just face facts here. You know, sometimes we we drop a little bit of realistic wisdom and we can crush their dreams. Pablo Picasso was quoted by saying, all children are born artists. Then they are educated out of it. Now, that's not a slight to our teachers or anything like that, but it's rather a reflection of society that gets us to conform to its way of thinking and its way of acting. It was children who dreamed about going to the stars and eventually did so when they became adults. It was children that dreamed of jetpacks and flying cars and space stations, and which we have today. Well, you may not have, I certainly don't have, but they do exist 
Children are imaginative and creative, and God's kingdom is as well. One of my favorite things to do, and I don't get to do this very often because I live in Katy, where light pollution is a legitimate thing. But I love to stargaze. I love to look up into the sky. And I don't have a telescope, so I have to rely on my iPhone that has this app. And you can hold the iPhone up, and the camera will look up into the sky for you, and it'll tell you where the different planets are, where the different um, constellations, the International Space Station is, and so you can see all of these unique things. You actually point it down, and you can see what's on the other side of the earth, what you obviously can't see with your naked eye. And one time, when I was looking up at the night sky, I saw Venus, Mars, Jupiter, the moon, and several stars all in a straight line across the sky. It was so bizarre and so wild. I, you, you can see stars that will pulse red or orange or even blue light, almost like they look like they're about to explode. And the light that you look at when you look at these stars, the light that you see happened years ago, but you're just now seeing the light today. For all we know, that star could have already exploded, but we won't even know because of the time that it takes for light to travel to us. But when we look up, we're seeing something that is historic. It's, it, the light has already emanated from the star before we can even see it. And if you go to the website uh, for the Hubble telescope, you can see some amazing images that display the creativity of our God. The butterfly nebula, the crab nebula, the uh, sombrero galaxy Uh, some of the most amazing creations in space. And you realize that these galactic paintings were made and that only our generation and after are able to see that. And we can rationally say that our God is incredibly creative. God's kingdom is pure, it's audacious, it's imaginative, and it's also, number four, energetic. Energetic. Children have loads of energy. Uh, we've said this before probably, but they, they, the expression is that having children later in life makes you feel younger. That's a lie. It makes me feel old. I get down on the floor to play with the kids and I can't get up again. I need like some sort of, you know, pulley system to, to get up off the ground. My knees, you know, the, the kids, they run around on their knees all the time. And I, it, it just hurts my knees just watching them. But they have loads of energy. Some of you have seen some of the videos we posted of them just literally running in circles, just taking laps around the living room. They can run. And sometimes it seems like they don't even get tired. They can play for hours and hours and still want more. They love games that require movement. Once we become adults, we're assigned cubicles, computers, filing cabinets, phones, and we're told to sit still. Is God's kingdom a series of cubicles? I certainly hope not. It's like a child full of energy and never running out. The kingdom of God is about worshiping God. Our God is full of life and full of energy. The kingdom of God is not boring. I I know that, you know, when I was growing up at church, they would talk about that we're going to get to worship God for all eternity. 
And when I was a kid, I'll be honest, when I was a kid, I was like, but what's the upside? What's the upside of going to heaven? And we're basically, what you're saying is we're going to be in church for all eternity. That doesn't really sound like your best sales pitch. Because some of us have gone to churches where we thought this isn't nearly as much fun as I would like it to be. It's not as, much, it's not as exciting. But God's kingdom is not boring. It's fun. It's full of people. It's, it's being with people that we love. It's a place of unlimited love and grace and mercy, power, creativity, provision, peace, and every good thing you can imagine. There's so much energy there that electricity isn't even needed because light emanates from God's throne. There's no darkness. There's no fear. There's no pain, no sadness, no sickness, no depression, no abuse, no suffering, no sin, no temptations, no heartbreak, no debt, no violence. If you have a hard time imagining heaven like this, then you need to do something very childlike and daydream again. Dream about the street of gold. Dream about the gate of pearl the throne of God, the glory of God, and the overwhelming love of God. The kingdom of God is pulsing with energy that, brings, uh, that breathes life into dead things. If we approach God's kingdom like a child, then number five, the kingdom of God is unlimited and faith-filled. It's unlimited and faith-filled. Since the Bible tells us that God is love, I want you to do a little bit of an experiment. I want you to substitute the word God for the word love in 1 Corinthians 13. And so I'll read it to you. Because we're familiar with love is patient, love is kind. It's 1 Corinthians 13. But since God is love, we're going to swap the words and we're going to put God in there. And you're going to see the character of God displayed in this. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not boast. God is not arrogant. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no records of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing and he's ever-present. He believes in us even when we don't even believe in ourselves. So why do we find it hard sometimes to be filled with faith? Has a child ever seen the real Santa, the real tooth fairy, the real Easter bunny? No. But does this lack of visibly seeing something cause a child to doubt its existence? No. Kids have no problems believing in things they can't see. They believe in the magical. They believe in the mysterious. Faith is usually not an issue for a child. Case in point, if you tell your child or your grandchild or your great-grandchild, whatever, we're going, I'm going to take you to Disney World this summer. Do you think for one moment they will ever let you forget what you promised? Every day they will wake you up. They will get in your face with their morning breath 
And let's say, are we going to Disney World today? When are we going to Disney World? You promise we're going to do it? They believe they're going to do it. How much money have you saved up for this trip? Which car are we taking? They want to know the details of this. They have faith. They believe. Unless you've proven yourself not to be a trustworthy person, unless you've shown yourself to be a liar, they're going to believe it. They're going to take your word for it. They're going to have faith that you will do what you promised. They accept things they can't see. They don't see Disney World, but they know it exists, and they trust that you're going to take them to it. But when concepts get shattered, faith becomes a problem. And so sometimes we put faith in people, and they destroy our faith. They don't keep their word. Our trust is broken and shattered because they said they would do something, and they didn't do it. And so we learn over time, if you repeatedly have those interactions, those situations, that you can't trust people. And so you start to lose faith in people. And even when people prove themselves to be trustworthy, you always have in the back of your mind that idea that I can't trust you. I, you know, there, maybe there are some people in your life that you actually have said, I, I trust that person as far as I can throw them. And I can't throw them very far. Well, faith is something that we should hold on to, especially when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. And I want to say one more thing about faith that I hope you'll think about for the rest of the week. It's found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. So it's two verses I'm going to read, and then we're going to focus on one little piece of it. Paul wrote this, Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And this is the key. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That expression, that last sentence is what we want to key in on. In the gospel, what is the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. And that's what we want to look at. As Christians, we typically do not operate from faith to faith. What we do is go from faith to works. We believe in Christ, and then we begin to maintain our deserving status of that salvation by earning it. And we may not ever say that, and we certainly have theology that that would disagree with that. But in practice, a lot of times we do it. We attend church out of obligation. We give in the offering out of obligation. We pray out of obligation. We sing songs out of obligation. You know, when I was a kid, the pastor would say, everybody raise your hands. And I didn't really feel it. So I would... I would just like, you know, I would half raise my, I I didn't want to be told how to respond in worship. I wanted my response to be worship uh, to be genuine and not coerced. And so sometimes out of obligation, we react and we, we do things. But God is trying to teach us that we didn't earn our salvation way back on the day that we accepted it, and we will never earn it any day afterwards. We are not called to live from faith to works where we earn our salvation. We're called to live from faith to faith. We never stop 
understanding that our salvation is based on his grace and our acceptance and belief in his grace, our faith. And we live from faith to faith. The kingdom of God is unlimited, filled with faith. Number six, it's also persistent. The kingdom of God is persistent. Man, let me tell you, again, go back to that Disney World idea. You tell that kid, we're going to Disney World. And if they're old enough to know what Disney World is, they will persist in reminding you of what you have promised. They'll believe it, and they'll persist in reminding you. When a child is young, obviously it can't walk. It's, it's little legs, you know, it, it's, it's on its belly, the baby's on its belly, and then it, when it rolls over for the first time, you're like, wow, that's awesome. But then you put him on the crib, and you're like, don't roll over. You know, because you could suffocate, so don't roll over. So you get them to roll over, and then you tell them not to roll over. And then they start to crawl. They get up on their hands and knees, and, and Gideon and Sam, they would rock back and forth. And we were like, yes, yes, come on, you can do it. Take a step. And they would put their arm out and hyperextend themselves. And we're like, okay, you know, so we'd, we'd have to, like, take their knees and move it. You know, you've got to teach them how to crawl. And, and then you teach them how to walk. And when they first are learning how to walk, what do they do? They fall. And, and, but the encouragement and the smiles that you give that child as their parent keep driving that child to take a step. And yes, the child falls. Yes, the child cries. But the comfort and the encouragement of the parent are all the child needs in order to keep on trying. The baby is attempting something it has never done before, and it will continue to try as long as there is a reassuring voice with encouraging words. That child will persist on trying to walk on very wobbly legs. Why will it continue to try even though it continues to fall and fail? Because when the child looks straight ahead, It sees faces lit up with smiles. The child hears phrases like, come on, you can do it. Here you go. You got this. I won't let you fall. I've got you. I won't let you go. One of the favorite things that now Samuel and Gideon like to do is we still have a changing table in our bedroom, and they're really too long for it. Their legs kind of hang off the end, but it's, it's easy for our backs to change them and put them in new pull-ups and everything. And so I stand them up, and we pull their pants up and get them dressed, and then you know what they do? They like to jump. They're making a really big assumption because what, what Gideon especially will do is he'll turn his back to me and just dive backwards. Now, we've set up a pattern where he knows I'll catch him, and I sincerely hope that, that I'll always be standing there paying attention uh, when he decides to do that. But we tell him, you know, the first few times, they, can I jump? Can I jump, Daddy? And I'm like, okay. And so I would hold out my hands. And I said, you can do it. I got you. I will catch you. I won't let you fall. In our daily walk, no matter where our path takes us, Look straight ahead into the face of our Heavenly Father, and you will hear him say promises. Say things like, I will never leave you. I will never 
forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will protect you. I will guide you with my right hand. I will be your rear guard. I'm your shelter. I'm your refuge. You can trust me. When you hear that from your father, you know you can persist in tough times when you know that he is the strength that's holding you up. You don't need to be strong for yourself when he is your strength. When I am weak, then I am made to be strong. It's not my strength that carries me through difficult times. It's his strength. Sometimes when I'm dealing with families that are going through a crisis, I tell them, give yourself permission to be weak because we try to be strong all the time and it's emotionally exhausting. Give yourself permission to be weak because when you're weak, you are made to be strong through his power. God's kingdom is pure, it's audacious, it's creative, it's energetic, it's fun, it's filled with faith, it's persistent. And finally, number seven, it's forgetful in failures. God's kingdom forgets our failures. I used to have this sermon called, It Sounded Good at the Time, or It Sounded Like a Good Idea at the Time. And man, couldn't we as parents write books based on that? It sounded good at the time. When I was a new parent, I made a lot of mistakes. And we used to say there's not a manual that comes with it. Well, technically there is, what to expect in the toddler years. Um, but who reads that? Um, clearly not me. <clears throat> and, uh, but each child is different, and there's not a manual that comes with that child. The way they react is, is differently than the way another child that is yours, reacts. And so when Mackenzie and Micah were young, these are my uh, oldest two, and I, would, I was a stay-at-home dad for a while. And they wanted a snack. And so I found something that I thought was a pretty good snack. It was uh, similar to oatmeal cookies. I figured, you know, this is healthy. It's oatmeal. You know, it's, 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 it's good stuff. And it's bite-sized. They can eat it uh, without any issues. So I figured it was healthy for him. The word oat is in the name of the product. The part that I really didn't think about is the word bran was also in the name of the product. Cracklin Oat Bran. Well, unlike Paul Harvey, I won't tell you the rest of the story from what happened to giving my child as much Cracklin Oat Bran as they could possibly want. <clears throat> because I'm sure you can figure out what happened. I've made plenty of mistakes as a parent, and my kids know that I'm not perfect, and I hope that they love me as I love them. I forgive them, and I try to forget their failures, and I trust that they forgive me and try to forget mine. One of the things that we do in our household is that we say we're sorry when we make a mistake, and that includes me. When I make a mistake, when I overreact, when I get angry, when I should be more even-tempered, when I'm impatient, um, I go to them and I apologize to them. Do I have to? No, I don't have to, but I do because it's a good example. I'm not perfect. And if, they, if you live in a house where basically a person is even when they're wrong, they think they're right. It's a difficult situation to be in. 
And so I will go to them and I'll say, you know what? I acted very poorly. I reacted in that situation and I would ask that you forgive me. And so a lot of times early on, they would say, that's okay. And I would say, it's not okay. The way I acted, I don't want you to emulate. I don't want you to do that. So I said, you need to say, I accept your apology. And so they've learned to say, when I tell them I'm sorry, they say, I accept your apology. And I expect them to come to me when they make a mistake. We try to forgive and we try to forget one another's mistakes as much as possible, but we're human. And we don't forget when other people make mistakes, but we can forgive them. We can move on. And honestly, this is a very important thing. And I'll tell you, this will help your marriage. When you choose to forgive someone, your reaction to truly forgive is to say, I will never bring it up to you again. Because in marriage, it's really easy to keep a scorecard of who's done more work, who's been right more often, who's been wrong more often. You know, honey, you're wrong 87.3% of the time, and I do 43.2% of the chores, you know, whatever. So it's easy to keep score, but when we forgive someone, we are saying, I will never bring it up to you again. Because if you bring it up to them again, say, hey, wait a minute. Now you did this or you said this. Okay, I thought you forgave me. And so we need to forgive and not bring it up to the other person again. When my children need discipline, they get discipline. We talk about it. We, we hug and, and embrace. I, I try never to discipline the children when I'm angry. Um, you know, sometimes you've always heard, um, this will hurt you more than it hurts me. Actually, we usually say the opposite. This hurts me more than it hurts you. That's totally a lie. Um, it, it definitely hurt them more than it hurt me. But we would, we would give them discipline when they needed it. But we would do it in love. And then we would move on. And, you know, I would, I would try not to berate the children when they would do all the times you failed, all the times you've broken the rules, all the times you've disobeyed. It's, it's dealing with right then and there as much as possible. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on up. I don't think we had any questions submitted. And why don't you stand with us this morning? If you're watching online, you can stay seated. Um, But uh, I want you to think about it in this capacity. So we talk about God's kingdom being forgetful of our failures. Where would we be if God kept a record of all of our wrongs? For those of us that are saved in Christ, we've accepted his uh, salvation and we've asked for his forgiveness, where would we be if he kept a record of all of our wrongs? How could we truly be loved by a God who was keeping score? We would fear him more than we would love him. And in that fear, we would never be free. We would be subject always to God's scorecard. Always afraid that we've racked up too many mistakes. Always afraid that that we're eligible this month for an Old Testament smiting. But what we learn in Scripture is that perfect love casts all fear away. Perfect love casts all fear away. That God chooses to forgive. 
He chooses to forget our failures. Isn't that such a blessing? That the kingdom of God is the kingdom of a clean slate. And that frees us to love him, to worship him, and to be unafraid of him in his presence. That's the kind of kingdom that God has established. That's the kind of kingdom we want to be a part of. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the kingdom that you established. We thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is audacious. Your kingdom is pure. Your kingdom is energetic. It's fun. Your kingdom is filled with faith, and it forgets our failures, all these things that we discussed today. And that when we come to you, when we come into your kingdom, we're encouraged to approach it like that of a child where we believe, God, in you. We believe that you can do the impossible, that we believe you'll keep your word, that when you make a promise, when you say something, we know that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish what you've sent it. So, Father, as we look at this passage from Mark 10, we see how you cared for the children, and you said that the kingdom of God belongs to them. Lord, let us have that childlike faith that we never stop believing in the impossible, that we have this audacious faith in you that you can do what you promised to do. We thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.